Good morning, everybody. I want to encourage you to be turning over to John chapter 3. We're going to continue to work through the first part of John chapter 3 in this famous encounter Jesus has with a man named Nicodemus as we continue on our journey through the gospel of John. Before we get started this morning, I want to welcome everybody here. So grateful that you're here. Of course, happy Mother's Day to all the mothers out there. And I also um, understand and realize that for many people, Mother's Day is a, it's a difficult day for a number of reasons. And so if you're one of those people here this morning, we, we see you and we love you as well. We're just grateful that you're here and we're grateful that we get to be here together and worship our God together. Uh, I've got a couple of visitors I want to point out this morning because they mean a lot to me. Uh, Nathaniel and Jessica Wright are here. Could you guys just wave real quick? Uh, so Nathaniel and Jessica uh, just finished up their time at Harding University and have moved back to uh, Orange County. And uh, Nathaniel's about to start uh, Police Academy soon, and Jessica is looking uh, for some employment opportunities. So if you want to pay a brilliant girl a lot of money to do something amazing and you have a need, maybe see her afterwards. Um, but we are very excited to uh, have them back in Orange County. We've been looking forward to this day for a long time. I had the, the good opportunity of performing their wedding in a very hot Texas weekend last year. So anyway, welcome home, guys, and I'm glad you're here this morning. Um, please make them feel welcome today, would you, afterwards? Okay, so John chapter 3. Last week we started in John chapter 3. We're looking at the first 21 verses, and we're introduced to this man named Nicodemus. He is a Pharisee, he's a Jewish teacher of some reputation, and he comes to Jesus at night. And what we learn throughout this encounter that Jesus has with Nicodemus, Nicodemus comes to him confidently telling Jesus who he thinks Jesus is. You, he says, we know are a teacher come from God because no one can do the things you do unless they're sent by God. And Jesus proceeds to have this conversation with Nicodemus that leaves Nicodemus utterly confused. And what we're left with is the realization that even for one of Israel's premier teachers, if he does not experience a true spiritual rebirth, he has no hope of seeing the kingdom of God. And so what we're left with in John chapter 3 and verse 13, which is where we stopped moving through the text last week, is that Jesus is trying to walk Nicodemus into a fuller understanding of of who Jesus is. Yes, he's a teacher sent by God, but he's much more than that, isn't he? And this is what Jesus says in verse 13. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. And of course, he's saying that in reference to himself. And so we're going to pick up in verse 14 from where we left off last week and go through the rest of this conversation where Jesus continues in this line of thinking, helping Nicodemus to see more fully who Jesus is. And so we get to verse 14 in the text. And this is, this is one of the last things Jesus says. He says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And there's a lot in this statement, but it's very interesting. And it's interesting because of where John takes us, or excuse me, where Jesus takes us in helping to fully understand who he is. He takes us back to Numbers chapter 21, and one of the strangest stories, at least I think, in all of the Old Testament. Israel has defeated one of the Canaanite kings, and they have made a promise to God that they will remain faithful to him if he just gives this king over to them. God, of course, upholds his end of the promise. 
But now on the heels of that, Israel has to take a long way around a certain territory in order to get to where they're going. And like we've seen from them over and over again as they wander through the wilderness, they grow instantly impatient. And they start to complain. And they say, why are we here? Why did God lead us into this wilderness? Obviously, he did it just to kill us. And by the way, we're sick of this terrible food. These are all the things that they start to complain about. And so as a reaction to that, God sends venomous snakes into their midst. And the snakes start to bite the children of Israel, and they start to die. It's a very strange story. And as a result of that, the children of Israel cry out to Moses and they say, we're sorry for what we've done. Please ask God on our behalf that he can stop and save us. And so we pick up in Numbers 21, verses 8 and 9. It says, the Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it on a pole. And anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. And then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they live. Now, if you go back and you read that story and you're encountering it for the first time and you say, I've got some questions, so do I. It's a really, really strange story. But this is the story Jesus takes us to, to try to understand who he is and what he came to accomplish. And the point is, Jesus is saying, just like Moses did with the snake, I've come to be lifted up as well. And so in order to be saved from the calamity they're experiencing, the people have to look at this elevated snake on a pole. And Jesus is saying there's some connection between that and himself. Well, what is that? Well, first of all, what we need to understand about all of the Gospel of John, really, is that throughout the Gospel, John is helping to prepare us through the words of Jesus for what eventually happens to Jesus, which is what? The crucifixion. That at the end of this story, Jesus dies. Of course, that's not the end, the end of the story, right? Because what comes next? resurrection. But the disciples were so caught off guard by the death of Jesus. This is not what they were expecting. John doesn't want us to be in that same situation. He's trying to prepare us for what comes at the end of this story. And so scattered throughout John are all these foreshadowings of the crucifixion of Jesus. For example, chapter 1 in verse 29, right in the first chapter. The next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God. Remember we talked about this at length when we went through the prologue. The Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sins of the world. Well, we know from that imagery that what was the lamb going to do? What did God use lambs for? They were sacrificial lambs, right? There's a death coming, and Jesus is connected to that death in one way or another. In chapter 2, in verse 19, Jesus answered them. Aaron walked us through this passage a few weeks ago. Destroy this temple, he says, and I will raise it again in three days. And of course, we know from that text what temple was Jesus referring to. Not the brick and stone temple, but... His own body, right? Again, a, a veiled reference to his eventual death and, of course, resurrection after that. Even in John chapter 10 and verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This isn't a hypothetical. This is what a good shepherd should do. This is what Jesus came to do. So all throughout the book of John is this foreshadowing, pointing us toward the eventual death by crucifixion of Jesus. And then if we go and we survey the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we find the same thing but different language employed. And if you look again at what Jesus says in this passage, he says, the Son of Man must be lifted up. There's an imperative here. 
That He came to accomplish the Father's will, and this is what has to take place. And I draw your attention to that word, must. And see how the synoptic writers use it. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, this is Jesus speaking about his eventual death. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised up. This is all according to God's eternal purpose. He must accomplish these things. You look at Mark. Here's a parallel. Mark 8, verse 31. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days raised again. And guess what? The same thing is in Luke, chapter 9, and verse 22. And he said the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus is giving a nod to what's going to happen. And it's interesting that he shares all this with Nicodemus because Nicodemus is still stuck in the whole born of water and the spirit thing, right? If he can't understand that, what hope does he have of understanding what Jesus is talking about here? And nevertheless, Jesus shares this with him. This is what I came to accomplish. Just as Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And we get to that lifted up terminology What is the real connection between that bronze snake on a pole in the desert and Jesus and his crucifixion? Well, Jesus is nailed to that tree, and then what? He is lifted up. He is suspended on that tree for all to see. So just as that serpent is on a pole elevated so the children of Israel could look at it and find salvation, Jesus is going to be hung on that tree, elevated, lifted up for all to see, as a sign of the salvation that God has brought to his people. So we find in John chapter 8 and verse 29, the same, or excuse me, verse 28, the same language. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. Well, what is he referencing when you lift me up? It's the crucifixion that he's talking about. When they will nail his body to that tree, and lift it off the ground on that hill of Golgotha for everyone to see. That's what he's referencing. John chapter 12, verses 31 through 33. Now is the time for judgment, Jesus says, on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. John leaves us with no confusion here. What is this lifted up language all about? It's not about Jesus ascending back into heaven like we find in the first part of the book of Acts. It's about the crucifixion. It's a reference to the kind of death he was going to die. So just as that bronze serpent on a pole in the desert is a sign of salvation to God's people, so will Jesus be when they nail his body to the cross. And he's sharing this all with a very confused Nicodemus. And then we get to verse 15. If you're looking for John chapter 3, verse 215, let me save you the trouble. It's not there, okay? It's verse 15. I apologize for that. This is what he says, that everyone who believes may have eternal life. Now, he's going to repeat the same thing famously in the next verse, but he introduces it here, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Why must Jesus 
be killed in this manner? Why is there an imperative behind this? Why is this part of God's eternal will? To accomplish something. That everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. It sounds a whole lot like at the end of John chapter 20, what he says the whole purpose of his book about is, right? I wrote these things so that you may believe and that believing you may have what? Life in his name. But he introduces us to two ideas here. And I want to just introduce them to you as well. Belief is the first of them. Is belief more than just an intellectual acknowledgement of Jesus' identity? What is belief? What does belief look like in the life of a believer? When someone comes to belief in Jesus Christ, all these invitations that Jesus is extending to us to believe in Him, what does belief actually look like? Is it just, yes, I acknowledge the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, or is something more required of this concept of belief? And if we wanted to explore that, we could do that. But that's exactly what the rest of the Gospel of John is about. It's going to walk us through an exploration of exactly that concept as we are introduced to these characters who themselves are being introduced to Jesus, and they are coming to belief we get to find out what belief looks like because we see it played out in their lives. And so I just want to introduce you to this question so that we might have it in the back of our minds as we continue on through this gospel story. What does belief really look like and what does it require of us who come to belief? The second thing that's introduced to us here is this concept of eternal life. What is eternal life? What does eternal life look like? What does it mean that he is offering us eternal life? Life. It's such a difficult concept for us to wrap our minds around because for us, life is finite. What does eternal life look like? A life with no limits. And what I want you to think about, we talked about this a little bit back on Easter Sunday, is the idea that eternal life isn't just a reference to what comes next. It is that for certain. John chapter 11, Jesus is talking with Martha, Lazarus' sister, who's mourning the death of of her brother and telling Jesus, look, if you would have been here, all of this could have been avoided. And this is what he says. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? He asks her. Of course, it's not long after that that he goes to that tomb and calls Lazarus out by name, illustrating that this is true. So eternal life is a reference to what comes next. But the reason I think it's important for us to understand that it's not just that is because I think for a lot of Christians, especially in our modern world, we've reduced eternal life to that aspect. That Christianity is all about, I need to behave now so that when I die, I can go to heaven. Do we look forward to the promise of heaven? Yes. Is a future resurrection part of our hope? It's actually the whole foundation of our hope, isn't it? Read 1 Corinthians 15. It's an essential part of our hope. But here's the question. Is that all there is to it? Or does it have something to do with the kind of people we are now? And does life itself change? Does the, the very nature of life, life itself change here and now while I am walking and breathing in this flesh on this earth? Has the nature of life changed because of the promise of eternal life that Jesus gives us. In other words, is it only a future reality or is it a present one as well? And I think Scripture is clear in the answer to that. It has everything to do with our lives here and now. 
eternal life, the future hope of resurrection shapes the way that we live here and now. In Romans chapter 6, Paul is talking about this at length, and I would send you to that chapter, but for now, let's just look at these three verses. Romans 6 and verse 11, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. He just got done explaining to us that in baptism, we are joined to Jesus, not just in his death, but also in his what? Resurrection. That we can walk in, anybody remember what he said? Walk in newness of life. When does that new life begin? After we die and are raised again? No, it begins immediately after we walk out of those waters of baptism. New life begins now, and this is what resurrection looks like now, that we are dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God, listen to what he says, as those who have been brought from death to life. As if resurrection is already a reality in your life. That's what he's saying. Live as if you've already been raised because you have. And offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. So I want to encourage you as we explore throughout this book all of these promises of eternal life and you try to wrap your head around what that means. Don't let it just be singular in nature. Don't, don't reduce it to this one-dimensional aspect of life where when I die, I get to go to heaven. Eternal life begins now for a believer. This is the whole point of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. You have to be what? Born again. What does that mean? That life begins anew when you're granted that gift of eternal life through belief in Jesus. Then we get to verse 16, and you guys know it so well, we'll just skip right over it. Just kidding. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. You guys know that verse? Some of you are probably driving around with that verse on bumper stickers. Right? It, it's, it is the verse. It's the verse of all verses. Right? People who only casually know the scripture know this passage because it is such a beautiful summary of the gospel message. Now before we get into the text, I want to I show you something. If you've got your Bibles, would you open them up? I know everything's on the screen, but whether it's a Bible app or a physical Bible, whatever you have, if you don't already have it open, would you do that for me? Because I, I want to show you something just for your own benefit so that when you study this on your own, you're not wondering what exactly is going on. I'm, for example, preaching out of an NIV translation of the Bible, and it is what we call a red-letter version of the Bible. So the words of Christ are in red to help you see when Jesus is speaking. So when I look at the NIV in a red-letter version, I read to the end of verse 15 that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him, and then guess what happens? The red letters stop. And the quotation mark at the end of verse 15 indicates that Jesus is done speaking. In other words, when you read the NIV, it, the translators have made a, a, a concerted effort to illustrate through their translation that they believe verses 16 and following are not the words of Jesus, but the words of John as he comments on the words of Jesus. Okay? 
some of you might be reading translations that don't make that distinction. So which is right? When does Jesus actually stop speaking in this passage? At the end of verse 15 or does he carry on right through verse 21? And the answer is, I don't know, and neither does anyone else. Okay, people are just making the best guess that they can based on the clues given to them. It makes sense to me that he stops in verse 15, but if you want to argue that he goes on in verse 16 and following, fine. At the end of the day, though, what does it really matter? Either way, either Jesus is saying these words himself or John, inspired by the Spirit, is commenting on the words of Jesus. Either way, we know that they're true and that they're from God. But I just want you to know what's happening there. Because if you're reading a red-letter Bible in a modern translation and for the first time you're noticing, hold on a second, didn't Jesus say, verse 16, the most famous verse in the Bible, did Jesus say this or not? I don't know. And I'm not bothered that I don't know. Because I know that what it says is true. And so, just for your own benefit, that's what's going on there. Okay, so verse 16, for God so loved the world. A few things to think about as we walk through this verse. Today's Mother's Day, and one thing I love about Mother's Day and Father's Day likewise is to watch kids, especially young children, use the language available to them to express to their parents how much they love them. Right? So moms, if you got little ones at home, I hope you, hope you woke up today and you got something from your kids, right? That they did, they made to show you how much they love you. So Robin got cards, she got pictures, Paisley did all kinds of art, that's her love language right now. She made her a little necklace with a, a heart um, made out of clay and it's got her thumbprint in it. Right? I mean, that's not the thing you go to Tiffany's and pick out, but I guarantee that means more to her probably than most of the jewelry I've ever bought her. Right? Kids, they have this limited language, but they do the best they can to show you how much they love you. Because we all recognize, when it comes to expressing love to the people we love the most, the words, I love you, they always fall short, don't they? They always fall short. There's something more we have to express. I really want you to see how much I love you. When I was about Paisley's age, one Mother's Day, I made my mom the best, the best Mother's Day gift ever. I recognized that she needed some new earrings, and so I found these giant shells like from the ocean, drilled holes in them, tied string through them, and gave my mom these new earrings. And I'm assuming she's wearing them today because, you know, best earrings ever, right? Any moms here, just curiosity, wearing anything your children made you this morning? Anybody? No one's willing to admit? Okay, all right, a couple of you are, right? You wear it because you know that's their way of saying I love you, right? We are limited as humans in the way that we can express love. God reaches out to us in the midst of those limitations and expresses his love to us in the most profound way possible. By making the ultimate sacrifice. By sending Jesus to die on our behalf, God is telling us how much he loves us. That's what that act of sacrifice is. And that's what John is expressing in this verse. Listen to what John says later on in 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. 
If you watched the little video I made this week telling you about what we were going to do today, you heard me talk about this already, but the Bible is a love story, but it is not a story about how much we love God. It's a story about how much God loves us. We find story after story of people struggling to come to faith and even some great characters who illustrate their faith in amazing ways. But the one thing every human has in common is that we fall short in our love for God. But God's love never falls short, does it? The story of the Bible is a story of a God who reaches out in love to his creation and a love that never falters and never fails. And the way that he perfectly proved all that, you go throughout the story of Scripture from the very beginning How many ways has God shown us how much He loves us? How many ways in your own life have you been blessed by the love of God? But what is the ultimate way God has proven that love to us? By sacrificing His one and only Son on our behalf. It's the ultimate gift of love. And that's what verse 16 is all about. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. Glenn already read part of this for us, but I'm going to read it again. You see, just at the right time, When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrates his own love for us. He goes on to say that what? While we were enemies, Christ died for us. That's not how we're used to parsing out love in the world. You kill your enemies, you die for your friends. Jesus died for his enemies to make us friends. This is the ultimate expression of God's love was seen on that cross. And Jesus is alluding to it in this passage. John chapter 1 and verse 18. What is this business about? For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. And of Of course, according to what translation you're used to, you might hear that verse in your head differently. Sent his only begotten son, his one and only son, his only unique son. What is all that language getting at? Well, it's getting at what this verse is expressing to us. We talked about it back in the prologue. The uniqueness of Jesus' relationship with the Father. Jesus isn't God's favorite son. He's not his oldest son. He's his one and only son. And he's not even his son in a biological sense. He's his son in regard to the closeness of the relationship and the uniqueness of that relationship that Jesus has with the Father. No one has the relationship that Jesus the Son has with God the Father. And this is what John says in the prologue, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, there's our language, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father He has made him known to us. We see God through the Son. We see God's love through the sacrifice of the Son. And when God makes that sacrifice, he's not just sacrificing his Son on our behalf. He's not sacrificing this other part of himself. He's sacrificing himself on our behalf. It is the ultimate sign of love. And then there's this part. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God so loved the world. And there is in this very real sense, this idea that God's love is universal, but it's also personal and individual at the same time. God so loved the world, like we just saw in Romans chapter 5, God sent Christ to die on our behalf while we were his enemies. There is no one exempt from the love of God. 
But then there's also this personal part of God's love. And it's that part that moves us. We're, we live in a world where we're inundated with superhero type figures, right? I love Marvel movies as, as much as anybody else. What happens at the end of every superhero movie? They save the world, right? That message is starting to get old. Yeah, it, it, we're used to it. Somebody with superhero powers saves the world. But Jesus isn't being presented as a superhero, okay? He's offering salvation to the world. He's redeeming the world. Sometimes the idea that he saves the whole world somehow becomes mundane to us. And it loses, I think, some of its importance. But the personal part of it, I hope, never will. And I think about what Paul says in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. Plug for Glenn's Wednesday evening class. If you want to learn more about Galatians, join us on Wednesday evenings. We're in chapter 2 right now, right? Okay, yep. Chapter 2 and verse 20. You guys remember this passage? If you ever went to camp, you probably sang this song. I've been crucified with Christ. Remember the song? Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. But here's the thing. Paul could have said, who loved the world and gave himself up for the world, because that's true. But that's not what Paul says here, because that's not what Paul's expressing. This is a personal expression of faith. Who loved me and gave himself up for me. To think of God's love in those personal terms, that yes, God loved the whole world and so sent Jesus to die on behalf of the world that the whole world might be redeemed to him. At the same time, he's doing that for me. And for you, that his love for you is so boundless that he made that sacrifice on your behalf. And when I think about the sacrifice of Christ in those terms, I come to understand it that much better. Because I don't know what you've done in your life. I don't know what sins you are burdened with, but I know my own. I know them very well. And when I think about the weight and the cost of those sins, and I think about my God loving me so much that his son died to redeem me, what value am I that he would do that on my behalf? This is why John 3.16 is such a powerful passage. For God so loved the world, but God also loved you so much that he sent his only begotten son, his one and only son, that if you believe in him, you're not going to perish, but you're going to see eternal life. And then we get to verses 17 and 18, and the commentary continues, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. I want you to pay attention to this. We're going to talk about it real quick. But to save the world through him, whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. And here's what I want you to understand from what John is telling us here. The sending of the Son by the Father is not an act of condemnation. God did not send His Son into the world to make sure that some of us would be lost. That is not the purpose of Christ coming into the world. And that might seem obvious to you, but for so many people in the world, it's not. They've got the whole concept exactly backwards. This past week, I was watching a clip from a comedian. Uh, he's a Chinese gentleman who immigrated into the U.S. just a few years ago, and he was talking about how when he first got here, 
two strange men in suits and ties knocked on his door. And they said, have you found Jesus Christ? He said, I didn't know I was supposed to be looking for him. So they went on to explain to him who Jesus was. And at the end they said, you have to believe in Jesus. Are you going to go to hell? And he said, hold on a second. You mean the billions of people in China that have never heard of Jesus are going to go to hell? And this is their response. They said, no, they're not going to go to hell because they've never heard of him yet. But you have because we just told you. And so if you don't respond, you're going to go to hell. And his response was, well, why did you tell me? (laughs) And, And, you know, it's funny to hear him say this story. But, man, talk about backwards theology. That is not the story the Bible is telling. The Bible is not setting the stage for our understanding of the history of the world like this. The world is perfect. And then Jesus came. And now if you don't believe in him, you're going to hell. But if he wouldn't have come, everything would have been fine. That is not the story the scripture is telling. We get to exactly chapter 3 in the Bible before we see how broken the world is. When given the choice between knowing God and knowing what God knows, mankind chose the latter. And we no longer got to walk with God in that garden anymore. You cannot look at the world around you and say, we have no need of saving. We're going to sort this out on our own. Listen to a newscast yesterday about how scientists are pretty sure within the next 10 years we might achieve the possibility of living forever, forever as people. Look, spoiler alert, but it's not going to happen. And honestly, if we're going to accomplish eternal life on our own, anybody really want to partake in that? If you think that through, anybody want to live forever on this earth the way it is now? I don't think my retirement plan would hold up for very long. I don't want to have to mow the lawn when I'm 485 years old. I mean, you just think about what it would look like to live forever in the brokenness that is the world as we know it. That's not what Jesus came to do. He didn't come just to say, everything's fine, but I'm just going to help you live longer. Everything's not fine, folks. Everything's broken. And everyone recognizes that. Not everyone recognizes that Jesus is the solution to that brokenness. He did not come to condemn us. We stand condemned already. He came to save us from that condemnation, to take us back to that garden, to put us back in relationship with our Father. That's what he came to do. So don't get it backwards. John chapter 12, starting at verse 44. If you look at that passage with me. John chapter 12 and verse 44 I'll read it quickly for time's sake. This might be one you want to revisit later this afternoon. Then Jesus cried out, Whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. Like I talked about, the relationship between Jesus and his Father is highlighted all throughout the Gospel of John. The one who looks at me is seen the one who sent me. Remember what he said in chapter 1 and and verse 18? That son who is in closest relationship with the Father, he has made him known. So Jesus is saying here, when you look at me, you see my Father who sent me. Verse 46, I have come into the world as a light, 
so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. All these themes are repeated over and over again in John. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I did not come to judge the world but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. Jesus has come to offer you life. You can continue on your path towards condemnation, or you can accept that gift of love and life. And that's really where we end here. It's interesting how in this commentary, Nicodemus just kind of disappears from the scene. We don't know exactly what happens after this, but this is what we're left with in this passage, these last three verses. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Okay, listen to me as we bring this to a close. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. And that provides this convenient illustration to wrap up this story. We are walking in darkness. Jesus has brought a light into the world. As Nicodemus exits the story and we're left with this, I think John intends for us to insert ourselves into this story. How would I have reacted? How am I reacting now as I read this invitation into life with Jesus? And the question I think John is begging us to ask is this. Am I ready to step out of darkness and into light? And it's the question I'm leaving you with this morning. God has sent his one and only son into this world to offer you life and life eternal. It's a gift of love, and he offers it to you freely. Are you ready to accept that gift this morning? Are you ready to step out of darkness and into light? And if the answer is yes, please let us know. Let's stand and sing this last song, and I encourage you to think about that question as we do. Let's stand and sing. We have heard the joyful sound Jesus Trust in horses. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. Trust in the work they do. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. By His grace, all the work is through. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. So we trust in the name of the Lord our God. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. His love never fails. His name will.